1903, the Ford Motor Company was incorporated, and they sold their first Model A on July 23rd of that year. Henry Ford didn't invent the car, but he did revolutionize not only vehicles, but in many ways, American society by producing cars that people could actually afford. The company's big breakthrough came in 1908, when Ford introduced the Model T. This car embodied everything that Henry Ford wanted. It was efficient, reliable, and reasonably priced. When it was introduced, a Model T cost only $825. Four years later, as Ford developed the assembly line and increased efficiency in manufacturing, the price dropped even further to $575, and sales soared. At its height, the most basic Model T could be purchased for as low as $260, making it accessible to nearly everyone. By the late 1920s, two-thirds of cars on American roads were Ford Model Ts. On May 26, 1927, Henry Ford and his son Edsel drove the 15 millionth Model T out of their factory. But just a day before, Ford had made headlines around the world by announcing that this Model T would be the last one produced. While it continues to be remembered as one of the best-selling vehicles of all time, by the late 1920s, the Model T was outdated. Other manufacturers were eating away at Ford's market share with more modern entry-priced vehicles. So Ford made the bold decision to close plants around the world and spend six months scrapping all that outdated infrastructure that had been used for almost 20 years of production on the Model T to retool the factories for the production of a brand new car. That last day of production was like a funeral for the Model T. Ford delivered a eulogy in which he said, it had stamina and power. It was the car that ran before there were good roads to run on. It broke down the barriers of distance in rural sections, brought people of these sections closer together and placed education within the reach of everyone. It was truly the end of an era, and the factory shutdown, while temporary, meant thousands of people would be out of work. And it meant Ford dealers around the world would have to either sell what they already had in stock, or rely on the sale of used cars and replacement parts. And not everyone was prepared for that reality. I'm Sarah, and you're listening to Weird Island. Each week, I'll be telling you about the strangest stories I can dig up from my tiny little state of Rhode Island. And this week, I'm joined by a special guest who brought me a story I'd never heard before about this Rhode Island-based Ford dealer who was once the largest automobile dealer in the world, up until he lost everything. Today, I bring you the rise and fall of Duty Wilcox Flint. This week, I'm joined by a very special guest. 
Um, so my name is Amanda Blunt. I am the author of the book Meet Me at the Biltmore, which was just recently published in October 2022. It's a comprehensive history of the 100 years at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Providence. I met Amanda a few weeks ago for coffee and to just nerd out about local history and her newly released book. And she told me something about hotels that kind of blew my mind. Hotels and apartment buildings were basically the same thing, or I should say hotels were synonymous with apartment buildings in the early days of luxury hotels. In fact, it was a wonderful option for the wildly wealthy to be able to own or long-term rent a suite at a hotel because everything that they had in their estates and mansions and country homes um, was available to them at the hotel. The ballrooms, the kitchens, the incredible wait staff, the 24-hour service, but they didn't have to pay for it themselves. It was all built into the fee of living in the hotel. So it was very common, particularly from about 1910 to the 1950s, uh, for very wealthy people to retain or own suites in hotels. This really altered my view of the role hotels played throughout history, because it meant that they were actually very much a snapshot of culture and trends and lifestyles at different moments in time. It also helps to really frame when you go back and read historical accounts of things that were happening at the time, you'll find when you are looking for it, that so many times when a police officer is looking for someone and they find them at their suite at the Waldorf Astoria or at the Plaza or at the Biltmore, I think we start assumed that everybody was just traveling a lot, but really they were living in these hotels. So uh, when they were found in their room at the Biltmore, they might have just been living in that room. Amanda uncovered all of these incredible and often overlooked stories of people who were living in the Biltmore and things that happened there that were significant not just on a local level, but on a national level. And there was one person living in the Biltmore that she was really captivated by, because she'd never heard his story, even though he was really well-known and significant in the early 1900s. His name was Duty Wilcox Flint, and he was one of the earliest and most successful Ford dealers in the world before he lost his empire, moved into the Biltmore, and largely vanished from memory. And she pitched the story to me in a way that was very much up my alley. She told me that in Edgewood, which is part of Cranston near the water, there are these two columns at the end of a driveway leading to a house. The house isn't super significant, but the columns are, despite the fact that you would never really notice them or think about them. But it turns out that they're the single piece of physical evidence of Duty Wilcox Flint's mansion, where he lived during the height of his success. A mansion which would later, mysteriously, burn down. But before we get to the end, let's start at the beginning. I think the the story about Duty Wilcox Flint really starts on a train traveling from somewhere in the Midwest to Providence when Duty Wilcox Flint himself was a very young man. And uh, he was flipping through a magazine and saw an advertisement posted from Henry Ford about uh, Henry Ford's new concept of the automobile. And 
Henry Ford was putting out an advertisement essentially for anyone who was intelligent, as it read, uh, or considered themselves intelligent, um, to open the very first automotive dealerships in the country. And Duty Flint, instead of going to Providence, got off the train in Detroit and walked right into Henry Ford's office and signed up for the job. Flint called up his grandfather and namesake, Duty Wilcox, back in Providence. He asked him to borrow $10,000 to get started, and with that, Flint became one of the earliest dealers for the fledgling Ford Motor Company, which had only been incorporated one year earlier. In an interview some years later, Flint was quoted saying, My idea was that the train I was riding on when I read about Ford in a magazine was on wheels, that the horseless carriage was on wheels that the whole future of the country was on wheels. And I wanted to get in on it. I was sure I had the right thing. The reason I think that's where this story starts is because that is such a profound character uh, sketch of who Duty Flint was and the kind of man he was um, in Providence. He had this unbelievable... uh, personality. He was magnetic. He was uh, charismatic. He was an entertainer. He was somebody who clearly wanted to be larger than life. And for a long time, he was. Um, So it was really no surprise to me when I started researching Duty Flint that he started to show up everywhere in the story of the Biltmore Hotel, because the Biltmore Hotel was larger than life. And it was the grandest hotel ever built when it was built in June 1922. And Duty Wilcox Flint was right there at the front door from from the very beginning. Looking back on Flint's early days selling cars, his first few years of sales seem pretty slow. He reported that he only sold 10 cars in 1905. In 1906, he doubled it, selling 20. And in 1907, he sold 100 cars. But by 1910, Ford was so happy with Flint's sales that he allowed him to expand his empire to include multiple dealerships across Rhode Island, Connecticut, and later New York and New Jersey. By the time the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, Flint's agencies were selling an estimated 10,000 cars a year. At his height, Flint advertised that he had 30 dealerships. Now, today, car dealerships are kind of unremarkable, but in the early days of Ford, and really the early days of vehicle manufacturing and ownership, agents like Duty Wilcox Flint were central to the success of the companies they represented. Flint's Providence headquarters was set up like a Ford factory, because the shop would actually complete the assembly of cars that were shipped via railroad in a knockdown form. The shop was full of specialized tools for each purpose, jigs that could hold each part of a car that might need repair, and even workstations that could be adjusted to the right height for the person doing the work. Dealerships would also fix broken down vehicles, and some could even build up a Ford car just from parts maintained in stock. The job of the salesman also went beyond just selling a vehicle. Often, salesmen found themselves educating a buyer about cars in general, and even sometimes teaching them how to drive. Which is kind of funny because Duty Wilcox Flint himself was reportedly not a super great driver. 
Duty was sued many times in his life. Um, he was perpetually getting into car accidents um, and being sued by people because he would hit them with his car. I'm not sure if cars were just not that great at the time or if Judy was a particularly bad driver, but he was sued at least a half dozen times uh, in his lifetime for um, car accidents that he got into. And because of that, he was constantly in litigation in, in court. Um, so he spent quite a bit of time at the Biltmore uh, because there were lots of business meetings and, and lawyer meetings that happened there. In addition to owning dealerships, Flint also owned something like 37 gas stations across New England. This was practical because the first purpose-built drive-in gas station as we know it today wasn't constructed until 1913. By that time, some 500,000 people already owned cars. So in the early days of car ownership, drivers were filling their tanks at pharmacies, general stores, hardware stores, or even blacksmith shops. In owning gas stations or filling stations, Flint could offer both the car and the gas needed to run it. And to sweeten the deal for prospective car buyers, he would offer gas at four cents below the market rate to Ford owners. All in, Duty Flint was very successful. So successful that he actually had a problem on his hands. The volume of cars being transported from factories to his dealerships via train was actually too high to be practical. So he bought a steamship. He was the very first person that that we know of, at least, uh, to transport cars by boat, because prior to that, they had been transported by, uh, excuse me, by railway. And um, so he bought a bunch of boats to transport cars between some of the manufacturing plants in New Jersey to um, sell them in New England. Um, In fact, he named uh, his boat the Trans Ford. Flint made sure that his success and his wealth didn't go unnoticed. In 1922, when the Biltmore opened its doors, his empire was booming. And he wasn't shy about showcasing that. The Biltmore Hotel was built uh, with the investments and the uh, private funding from lots and lots, if not all, of the wealthiest people in Providence. And those people were invited to the opening day ceremonies. One of them was our character, uh, Duty Wilcox Flint, who was, at the time, had just amassed a huge fortune. So on opening day, Duty Flint was there and he had lined up outside of Union Station, the old train station, which is catacorner to the Biltmore Hotel. Uh, He had lined up this long line of Fords. And when all of the delegation of hotel men from Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. and New York City showed up on the train that afternoon, Duty was there waiting for them with his cars. Um, because cars were still very high society and fashionable, and and the fact that he had 40 or 50 of them at the time was um, quite outstanding. And he actually, even though everyone could have just walked basically like a quarter of a mile across the mall to the hotel, he had everyone get into the Fords, and then he drove them out to Edgewood uh, to his estate for a very brief, like, 45-minute lunch. (laughs) 
um, where he basically just showed off how wealthy he was and his beautiful water view and gave everybody tea sandwiches and then drove them all back to the hotel so they could actually go to the opening day ceremonies. His success was also recognized very early on by Henry Ford himself. Yeah, Duty Flint was critical to Henry Ford's operations in the beginning of the Ford Empire. Uh, He and uh, Henry became very close friends. Duty and his wife Rose hosted Henry and Clara Ford at their home and on their many yachts um, many times. Notes and letters preserved by Henry and his wife Clara Ford document the close relationship the two families had. The Fords introduced Flint to a world of big-name celebrities, including Thomas Edison. And Ford trusted Flint in business dealings. In the early 1920s, Flint traveled on Ford's behalf to examine the car business in Denmark, Germany, Spain, and France to see about expanding the company's footprint overseas. Flint helped Ford purchase a hotel in Massachusetts, and generally speaking, Ford recognized Flint as one of his most important agents. Um, Henry Ford actually wrote Duty Flint a letter, I I believe around 1915 or 1917, that essentially said, um, you are my most important automotive dealer, and you will be selling cars for me for as long as my as long as the Ford company sells cars, which obviously was a a terrible way to jinx poor Duty Flint. But that's exactly what happened. When the Ford company shut down in 1927 to retool from the Model T to the brand new Model A, Duty Wilcox Flint wasn't in a position to withstand the loss of sales, and his massive, successful empire crumbled around him. It's a little ambiguous what actually happened. In Duty Flint's obituary, it listed that he had lost his fortune due to the stock market crash in 1929. Realistically, his fortune had actually been losing value. His his books had been losing value since well before the stock market crash. Judy Flint had borrowed an incredible amount of money, and he was basing this this level of debt on the idea that he would have a huge amount of profit from the sales of all of these cars. Well, when the Ford company stopped producing cars for a significant period of time, Duty went into terrible arrears with a lot of his debt. Unfortunately for Duty Flint, he was not exactly very honest about what was happening within his business transactions. And he told, he reported to the Ford company for whom he was a dealer, that he had significantly more assets than he actually had. When the Ford finance team caught wind of the reality of Duty Flint's uh, assets, they came to Providence on a train, due haste and liquidated everything that he owned. So in just over 20 years, Duty Wilcox Flint built up and then lost his whole automotive empire. Pretty much overnight, Duty's fortune went from extremely wealthy to having almost no assets. And at the exact same time, there was a mysterious fire that took place at his home in Edgewood. Um, It was surmised or maybe sort of gossiped at the time that he had burned his own house down. Um... What I later found in my research was that this probably was 
um, something Judy was very good at because it appears that there were multiple fires uh, over the course of Judy's lifetime in his barns and garages um, that burned enough assets, cars, machinery, equipment, that he was able to take insurance claims out on him. So this wouldn't be the first time that Judy was committing insurance fraud. Um, and it appears that burning his own home down at the end of his uh, his fortune's downfall was um, his largest, maybe, act of arson. But after that, he moved to the Biltmore Hotel. Duty Wilcox Flint, his wife and his daughter, would live in the Biltmore off and on for the next 20 or so years, and many milestones were celebrated at the hotel. Like their daughter's 16th birthday, which was held in the Biltmore's grand ballroom. Flint never rebuilt his Ford empire, but he and his wife maintained appearances and continued to show up in the social columns of local papers throughout their lives. When Flint moved into the Biltmore, he brought his hobbies with him, which were incredibly diverse and interesting on their own, beyond his business achievements. He was something of an inventor, and today you can find patents he held on gas pumps and golf clubs. And he dabbled in radio in the very early 1920s. And radio at the time was very, very new. It was like this cool new technology. And he had a lot of money, so he built um, huge radio towers. Um, People noted in the newspaper at the time, in the 1910s and 1920s, that um, Judy Flint had massive radio towers on the top of his mansion, which probably looked like essentially having a spaceship on the top of your mansion because it was such new technology and very bizarre to people. Um, Judy broadcast his own radio shows. Um, Sometimes it was just his opinions on things and he would just sort of talk radio, Judy Flint style. And then sometimes he would have, he would hire someone to play the massive massive, massive pipe organ that he had in his living room, um, just play it for hours on end uh, into the radio receiver so that he could broadcast that out to Cranston and Providence and, and the surrounding area. But he was very involved in radio his whole life. When he moved into the Biltmore, Flint brought all of his interests with him and even continued to broadcast from the hotel. Radio at this time was incredibly interesting and That could be a whole episode on its own. But it's fascinating to see how many different industries he was really at the cutting edge of. Henry and Judy Flint remained very close, even after the Ford Company, um, perhaps involving Henry or perhaps not, basically dismantled Judy Flint's empire. but Judy Flint, to his dying day, would not speak a negative word about Henry Ford. But today, there's not too much being said or remembered about Judy Flint and the role that he played in the company early on. Judy Flint is largely forgotten in the history of Rhode Island and the history of the world. Uh, Though at the time when he was alive, he was an incredibly important person to society in in sort of the high society. Um, Now, I would say the memory of Judy Flint is much like the the only standing artifact of Judy Flint, which are the two stone columns on the street in Edgewood that mark the driveway where his mansion used to be facing the Narragansett Bay. Um, And there is literally nothing left. 
that reminds us of Judy Flynn. There are no artifacts from his life other than these two stone columns. But I think that it's important to note that Judy Flint himself was responsible for the fact that there's nothing left. This is just one example of the many stories Amanda shares in her book. Stories that are geographically happening in this one relatively small place, but are sprawling in scope and impact. Hotels are such a fascinating place to start if you want to learn about a city or a town or a region because a hotel is the great, particularly historic hotels, is the great melting pot of any city. Uh, The Biltmore is a great example, but you could use any hotel really here. Um, The wildly wealthy would live in and stay at and entertain at these hotels. And the people who had absolutely nothing would work in the hotels and they would often be treated uh, to being able to entertain their own parties in different areas of the hotels. So you really had a full melting pot of people who were celebrities and anonymous. You had people who were had multiple identities. You had people who wanted to do things that were public facing and then be able to walk a very short distance and do things behind closed doors. So hotels are fabulous places to get to know the inner workings, both nefarious and perhaps famous in a city. Thank you so much for listening. And a huge, huge thank you to Amanda Blunt. I can't recommend the book enough. So Amanda, if people want to buy it, where should they go? Meet Me at the Biltmore is full of characters like Judy Flint, um, though he is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, the book itself is uh, was published by Stillwater Press, which is in Pawtucket, and it's available uh, from me on my website, biltmorebook.com, or from Stillwater Press in Pawtucket, or pretty much anywhere you buy your books at any local stores. If you liked this episode, I would love it if you could share it with your friends and family, or you can send me a note at weirdrhodeisland at gmail.com or on Instagram at weirdislandpodcast. And if there's a topic you'd really like to hear about, let me know. See you next time as we dig up more stories about all things weird and wonderful in the little state of Rhode Island.